I'm Kirk Bailey and welcome to episode 51 of the Boss Podcast. I hope that wherever you are listening to this podcast, you're staying safe and well in the midst of this pandemic. It's a tough time for us all, but things will get better. As with previous episodes, I'm here today to bring you a talk given at a previous Boss Conference in the hope that it will spark some innovation or ideas or just give you a chance to revisit a talk you enjoyed. This week we revisit the agony and ecstasy of selling a business, a talk given by Jason Eckenroth of Ship Compliant, who spoke at Boss in 2017. The Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Jason Eckenroth founded Ship Compliant in 2000. A bootstrapped company, it grew to be a highly profitable market leader, well-loved by customers with an NPS of over 70. Jason sold the business to a private equity house in 2015 and stayed on to lead the new business before the acquirer was sold to another private equity firm in 2016. At this point, Jason left. A significant financial success for Jason, no question, but does it change his views on selling? Jason now heads up Sovereignty, a community of successful independent businesses and leaders whose companies are self-sufficient through their own profitability. With Sovereignty, members are in control of their destiny, but recognise the tension of success in maintaining self-ownership and wish to face this challenge together. In this talk, Jason looks back at the process of acquisition he went through in 2015. Is it really the big win that it is so often made out to be? What's more rewarding, the big cash cow or sticking with the business through potential growth plateau? Happy listening. I've never uh, shared this story, this first uh, story with anyone. And I thought I could share it with, with you guys. My assumption is we have a lot of founders. And... So um, let's get in the right frame of mind first. Can you all close your eyes and think back to a moment professionally perhaps where you felt the most, the most alone, where you had, um, you felt like you were facing the most important decision of your life, you felt incredible amount of insecurity around it, so much so you couldn't really share it with others because you're the strong leader, you're the CEO, you're supposed to have all the answers. Think and, and capture that moment. Now keep your eyes closed through the rest of my presentation, please. So. <laughs> okay, so I had a moment like that, and it was uh, um, a little difficult for. Well, frankly, the reason I haven't shared it is because I, I was, I'm, I was really ashamed of it. Um, still, perhaps a little embarrassed. We'll see how we'll see how it goes. Okay. It's 11 p.m., nine hours to close. Uh, I'm, uh, I just stepped out of dinner the night before our close with the CEO of the acquiring company. And it had been about two months since I signed the letter of intent to sell my business. Um, when I signed that letter of intent, I was, you know, I'd gone through all the math and the, and the logic and I decided, okay, this is the right decision, this is the right move. That was two months earlier, why? Nine hours before close, had my confidence around that decision completely evaporate. I rolled into that dinner hoping it would be, it would fill me with more confidence and restore my um, apprehension, and it, it did the exact opposite. I couldn't really place it either. 
because the facts hadn't changed. It just was 24 hours before close. And as I was leaving that um, dinner, my, uh, my chest became very tight. I uh, felt, I don't know, just like tingly, maybe the way I'm feeling right now <laughs> talking to you. <laughs> and uh, I get into the car, start driving pretty slowly home. And I'm thinking, you know, I, I, I feel kind of drunk. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's the alcohol. Do we have, yeah, we drank. Oh my God. Like, what am I, uh, what am I doing? I see a police officer um, in a car. And I, my mind starts thinking, shit, if I get pulled over, uh, there's no way we're going to close. I can't get to, uh, what, kind of a, what kind of an outcome is that? And my mind starts thinking, if I get pulled over, we don't have to close. <laughs> and, and that's when, you know, that's when I really, really got down. Like, how in the world did I get myself to a position where I was like, leaning on something so terrible as a way to um, escape the, um, the responsibility of following through with the decision I'd made. Why the hell was I um, having so many second thoughts? I couldn't, I really couldn't put my finger. I couldn't put my finger on it. It was a, like a wave of inevitability, you know, like a sea pushing in. Yeah, we'd spent a lot of money and legal and everything was lined up to close the next morning. That's just money. Yes, there were people that were counting on this, um, other shareholders. Everyone's freaking mind had sailed. My, my executive team that knew about the deal, I knew it. In their mind, they're already working for the next guy. So how the hell do I turn that back? And was I just reacting to this, like, indecision? And was it irrational of me? Was I going to throw away this deal because of an irrational fear? What the? Maybe I'll get to the F word later, but I'm not there yet. <laughs> okay. It's 1 a.m., seven hours to close. Um, I'm home. I'm uh, chatting on Slack with my uh, uh, forum mates. Uh, I'm in a CEO forum uh, full of uh, other entrepreneurs, and, and they're all like, Jason, you got this. And like, no worry, it's last minute, you know, butterflies. And I just, I just, I just didn't know what uh, everyone around me was, was solid on. So now it's, uh, it's 3 a.m., five hours to close. I'm like, all my channels are dark. My friends on the other, uh, and, and, and advisors that were several time zones away, they're all asleep. It's just, me, my wife is asleep upstairs, and my mind is so clouded, it, all my self-confidence around this decision has completely evaporated. And I felt the weight of 17 years of building a business and all the little decisions, all the time I stood up for what I thought was the right way to do something or to build a durable business, um, to step into something that was super painful, all came down to this moment where I had lost absolute, complete, uh, confidence that I was going to make the right decision or I was going to make the wrong decision. Every which way I looked at it and I went back to these, you know, one of my favorite things to do when I'm really stuck is I think about how a decision is going to affect me and I make a decision like, okay, what's the best thing for me? I think about how it's going to affect others. And I tend to get a lot more energy when I think about how it's going to affect others. And I just couldn't slice it. This was either going to be the most selfish, selfish thing I'd ever done in my entire life 
punch my ticket, walk away with the cash, leave the customers and the employees hanging to deal with what came next, or it was going to be the most selfless thing because I was walking into a complete unknown, walking away from something I'd built for 17 years and it was my life, it was it. And I had no idea what was going to be on the other side of it. And I was just stuck and eventually I, I went upstairs, went to bed, five hours of clothes. So, um, so let me rewind the clock, give you a little, a little more context. Um, so 17 years or so earlier, I uh, started a software services company with uh, one of my best friends in college. This was us celebrating our first uh, deal. Um, it was for a winery, and there's the wine bottle. We didn't realize we're not supposed to pop the cork and drink it straight out um, of the top. It was like a $250 bottle when we were dead, <laughs> dead, poor, uh, dead poor college students. And over um, the next several years, you know, now I look back on it a bit romantically, like those were good times, but honestly, when I, when I, when I actually think about it, there were plenty of times I just don't want to have to go through again. <laughs> the business was a bad business. It was an unscalable consultancy, and it took me a few years to figure that out. And uh, meanwhile, I'm reading about all these amazing funded companies and people selling, and it just created a mythology in my mind that that was the definition of success. But I also, at the same time, felt like that ship had sailed. Fortunately, we built a team, we iterated, and we, we discovered a niche, uh, launched a SaaS business. Oops, wrong way. Launched a SaaS business in, in uh, 2005, called it Ship Compliant. It was a compliance software for wineries. It was a niche of a niche of a niche of a niche. And uh, even in the three niches, we had competition, but over the next <laughs> 10 years, bootstrapped that business slowly, steadily, um, linearly. We had a 72 pr uh, net promoter score loved by customers. Um, we had systematized our HR and recruiting and hiring so that we were recognized as one of the best places in America to work. And over that journey, like through what I feel was accident, um, I, I created a business that gave me a tremendous amount of, of meaning and, uh, and purpose. The culture we created was founded, or was, was really centered on a very clear purpose, which was to create remarkable experiences through customer, or through service relationships and technology. And that was a tall order in alcohol compliance. But it motivated people, and it motivated me. And also our core values. And our core values were authentic empathy, feel it, authentic empathy, own it, take responsibility for outcomes, shape it, a passion for possibility, scale it, one plus one equals three, like our bootstrapping roots, and crush it. Just freaking crush it, our competitive spirit. So these values ended up showing up again and again in my um, decision to sell and going through all of that. This is our uh, spirit board. Uh, we did weekly huddles. Um, with the team, very transparent, um, refocusing the team every single week on exactly what we were, uh, what we were doing. So around four or five million dollars in ARR, it was, life, was, life was good. Like it finally felt like we had made it. We had created a, a sustainable profit margin on our recurring revenue. Um, the culture was doing well and I had found personal 
purpose in leading a team uh, of that size. I mean, there's a point before it was a burden and it no longer became a burden. I saw the impact that I could have as a, as a leader for others and it really, really filled me with, um, with purpose. But at the same time, we hit that first summit. Nothing was ever good enough. We always, we, me, was always, I never celebrated the win. I always looked for the next summit, the next summit, the next summit. And unbeknownst to myself, I had developed a real aversion from being willing to, to, to walk from one summit down into the valley to get to the next summit. I just wanted to walk from one summit and then like get on the uh, moving walkway <laughs> to the escalator on the next summit. And um, you know, very subtly, the mindset, first with me, of course, but then it permeated the whole business, is that we shifted from playing to win to playing not to lose. Playing not to lose. This set us up for a bit of tenderizing. So let me talk to, to you about tenderizing. Everyone knows what a meat tenderizer is. So um, a few years before we sold, we were looking to buy businesses. And I hired a, uh, an iBanker, an investment banker, to help me um, with the deal stuff. And we'd had a number of offers out. The, the responses from the entrepreneurs were just kind of ridiculous for the size of the business. I'm like, God, you know, iBanker guy, this is too expensive. He's like, Jason, you're never going to get a deal done. You're never going to buy a business for a reasonable amount until that founder, if it's a founder-led business, they've got to be tenderized first. I'm like, what? Really? Well, tell me more about tenderizing. He's like, well, you know, their, uh, their growth's got to start to slow. Maybe they hit some technical um, issues. They start losing some of their uh, key employees, and, and, and the culture starts to shift. Um, maybe the self-confidence of the leader starts to shift, and they no longer think that everything's going to be going up, but they're worried about riding it over the top. And I was in a niche, and uh, for years we had worked against some of these tenderizing potentials, like uh, market size. You know, we went from um, our first niche and grew that up, and then built other products and other products and other products, and, and just kept squeezing that growth curve up and up and up. Um, I thought I'd, I had it nailed, like I knew what to look out for. But actually, um, I'd set myself up for. One of, the, uh, one of the toughest moments um, in my business in just a few bits. If you are interested in all the different ways that your business could die, you can read this book, Mistakes Millionaires Make by Harry Clark. I call it nightmare food because really all it is is like 40 stories about entrepreneurs losing it all. Um, <laughs> so my list of uh, tenderizing moments, he kind of fills it uh, fills it back out. Okay, so my moment. So my moment occurred, I think, in around uh, 2013. And I had started to believe, and I had advisors kind of suggesting this, that, and I read it all over the place. The founder, the company outgrows the founder. The company outgrows the founder. And I was definitely hitting some ceilings, and I didn't seem to be able to, like, push myself as a leader through those ceilings, and maybe I just need to go back to being in a startup mode. Who am I to be the CEO? When you're the, the sole founder of a business, 
You're not there through democracy. No one hired you. Self-appointed dictatorships. And if someone doesn't agree, they're gone. So that doesn't really feed. There's no feedback loop that, hey, you're doing the right, you're the right guy for the job. And I let that get into my head. So I decided, you know what, I, I do need to hire someone. I'll, I'll hire a, uh, an operator to run the business. I'll get out of the way. So we made this hire. And um, I knew almost right away it wasn't the right, it wasn't the right fit. Um, but I was, in a, I was in a jam. I had come, I'd gone out to my board, to my team. I said, this is the guy. Can I just change my mind in two weeks? How irrational is that? Am I the, I'm the founder that won't let go. I'm not creating the space. It's a blind spot of mine. How am I supposed to know what my blind spot is if, I, if it's a blind spot? So I decided I had to wait for the data. And I couldn't go around him and check in with my team and say like, ah, you know, my heart's telling me this isn't the right guy, that, that he's screwing this stuff up. And they would tell me, are you kidding? This is great. Meanwhile, he's handing out promotions and not firing anyone. But it, the uh, time went on. And uh, unfortunately, my, my hunch was right. And 10 months later, um, through attrition, through a collapse in sales, um, through a complete collapse in accountability within the organization, our growth rate just absolutely plummeted. And I felt like it, my business was water spilling through my fingers. And all of a sudden, like, my mindset shifted. I'm not getting on that moving escalator to the next summit. I'm about to ride this sucker over the top. Crap. I mean, it was a, it was a moment where we could have, uh, the business could have definitely just continued to, to crater down. And we certainly were not, um, it wasn't a very valuable business at that moment, with a lack of, uh, a lack of, uh, of growth. So in that moment, um, I started to think and reflect more and more on phrases I'd heard, seminars where I saw people I admired speak, and something that just kept, I kept coming back to, I fired that guy, right? And I was blaming that guy for my lack of growth. I was blaming that guy for the dissolution of my, my culture. But that was wrong. That was wrong. People quit their jobs. I'm sorry. People quit their, uh, their bosses, not their jobs. You get the organization you deserve. The bottleneck is always at the top. If I were to believe that, and I do believe it, and I've seen it again and again and again, if I keep digging, why did you leave? Why did you leave? Why did you leave? They left because of their boss. Why did they leave because of the boss? Well, because I hired that boss. I hired that manager. I failed to create a, uh, an environment that uh, set up better growth with, uh, with the team. So I was going to take responsibility for this. And uh, it was definitely a, mo a moment in the business where I felt very much uh, <coughs> lost. And it felt uh, like it couldn't get worse. And it was right in those moments that I made two of the most important decisions <coughs> I'd ever made in the, uh, in the business. The first was, how many of you are in EO or YPO or have heard of those organizations? So that's a, that's a, a, a self-organizing group of, uh, of founders. And some of the most dynamic and inspirational folks I've ever encountered all seemed to have gone through the same 
program. Um, it was called Stegen Leadership Program. I enrolled myself. It's in Dallas, Texas. It was 15 months, and it completely shifted me as a, as a leader. My, my background was in civil engineering. I had no, and I started my company in college. I had no bosses, and the last boss I had was in an amusement park in Hershey, Pennsylvania. <laughs> so I didn't have those kinds of role models. I didn't know how to lead and manage, but I decided I was going to commit um, to doing that. The second decision, really my staff gets all the credit. They found a way to take what we had done for beverage alcohol and apply it to any business that was selling um, goods in the United States to automate their sales tax compliance. So we radically changed our total available market. We had been playing this little sandbox, little sandbox, little sandbox, and all of a sudden, boom, this was a massively big market. But it would also take a lot of capital, and it was risky. Um, and there's a lot of stuff we hadn't uh, known how to do before. But that one decision completely changed our value of the business. You know, if I was in the, interested in selling, that was, a massive, that was a massive move. Okay. So pretty quickly after that, um, pretty quickly after that, like uh, the business started to turn around. We got our growth rate back. Uh, we, um, the culture started to gel again, started to in, in institute a, a stronger level of accountability. Uh, we moved into this new adjacency, and all of a sudden, we started getting offers. Um, strategic buyers started to show up, and within a 90-day period, I had five companies reaching out saying, we love what you did in beverage alcohol, and we love where you're going in, in, uh, in the sales tax. Why don't you join up with us? And there's ways to look at it. Like, I, I always, and I still feel this way, you know, like a, a company should be bought, not sold. And I was really against hiring a banker and putting my company out on the auction block, putting up a, a little prospectus with a silly name, Project Ono, and it, it just talks about my company, and it gets distributed around to um, every uh, private banker, competitor, and, and former employee. <laughs> and... Um, but the flip side, doing it the way I did it, was like a frog in water, the degree gets turned up little by little. And it starts with, uh, you know, this is interesting. I kind of admire that company. Let me just see what, what the offer is. You know, at least at the very le least, it'll validate where we are in the market. Well, then I take that, that information and I start having to defend my information. Next thing you know, I'm, I am selling. I'm selling my business to somebody. So it moves really fast. So we went from not even thinking that we were selling to having a letter of intent in front of me in probably 60, 60 or so days. So the offer, the offer, so there I'm at that moment. I'm looking at the offer, and it, it all makes logical sense. We were, as a company, I felt at a local maximum. We had turned things around. We were charging ahead in our niche, and we had found an adjacency. We had proof points in the adjacency. If I didn't sell now, my next opportunity maybe in five years. Was I ready for that? Was I really ready to commit to another five years? I didn't, I didn't know. My, my, I was still quite tenderized. Uh, the hof, offer hit the number. A few years earlier, I'd sat with a wealth advisor and, and figured out what I thought you know, the number would be, and it, it hit it, beyond hit it. Um, the exec team was enthusiastic. My advisors were enthusiastic. Everybody around us said, 
this is amazing. You got to take this deal. The partner appeared to be the right fit, a natural expert in what, where we were going. And it just felt like this was the right next level for the business. Personally, personally, I felt after 17 years, and I kept telling myself this, maybe I just need to let go of what I have uh, to make room for what was next. And it was a belief, this belief, that really kind of opened my mind to becoming more comfortable with the unknown. Because um, I really hadn't been that comfortable with it. Everything in my life had been very iterative. And this was a step off the cliff into the mist and trust um, that, it would all, that it would all work out. So quickly from the letter of intent, I'm back. It's 3 a.m. It's 3 a.m. Uh, you guys already know how much of a wreck, an emotional piece I am at that moment. And what keeps going through my head, where I was trying to get to, was asking myself, how does this affect me? How does this affect others? I couldn't get, I couldn't get resolution to it. It swung both ways. And I knew that at the end of the day, I'm the one that's going to be walking away. I own 70% of my business. And I'm going to be the one that's going to have the parachute, not anyone else. I roll into, uh, so I go to sleep thinking, OK, this is all just like some food poisoning. I'm going to wake up and it'll be super clear tomorrow. I woke up the next morning, gathered the exec team, and we went over. Um, I just shared what was on my chest. And, um, they remain enthusiastic. Let's do it. I felt this is just an irrational fear of mine. I'm just afraid of the unknown. It's just all it is. So we did the deal. A very anticlimactic, if anyone's ever done it, release the papers. <laughs> and then you have like 17 lawyers on the other end of the line. Papers are released, papers released, papers released. That was $20,000 and papers released. <laughs> Okay, so um, like half an hour later, I get with the CEO, and we gather the team, and uh, we make the announcement. And it's like this, you know, everybody's staring at me, and, and I, I took a picture of the moment. Nope, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. Let me, uh, let me back up. So before I um, tell you what happened with the team, um, I want to share a, a lasting uh, lesson. And I've shared this with other entrepreneurs because to, to encourage them to not underestimate the power of this. And it is that at that moment, no one is going to stand between you and a deal. At that moment, you have to depend on yourself solely to make this call. There's no safety net. No one's going to stand between you and it. If you are absolutely crystal clear what you want in life, then it makes that decision so much easier. You can think about that decision and how it serves your life and your goals. But if you're not clear and you're depending on whether it's a good deal or a bad deal or, and getting in it like I was in my head, analyzing all the little aspects of it, 
no one's going to stand between it. No one's going to slap you across the face and say, dude, you know, when, the, when your, your best friend's up on the altar with his bride-to-be and the priest says, does anyone object to this? And you stand up, yeah, I do. Dude, not a good idea. No one's going to do that. It's just between you and yourself. Um, this is Mark from... Some big companies wanted to buy us. I didn't want to sell. I wanted to see if we could connect more people. Nearly everyone else wanted to sell. Without a sense of higher purpose, this was their startup dream come true, and it tore our company apart. After one particularly tense argument, one of my close advisors told me if I didn't agree to sell the company right now, I would regret that decision for the rest of my life. Relationships were so frayed that within a year or so, every single person on our management team was gone. That was my hardest time leading Facebook. Be super clear before you step into the ego-boosting waters of talking M&A. It will mess you up, and it will mess up your company. Sometimes for the good, because maybe that's what you need. But it definitely will. So, release the papers. Making the announcement to the team. It looks just like you guys. Took a picture. It did not help my communication strategy that it also happened to be April Fool's Day. Um, that was a pretty elaborate joke. Where'd you get that guy? <laughs> um, yeah. So um, the rest of the day was a blur. Um, this team was kind of a blur. The, uh, I will share one of the, the, the number one question, the first thing that all of my members of my team came up and they asked me, and they only asked me privately. Jason, how, what's your uh, contract for? How long do you have to stay? How long do you have to stay? And I, you know, I, I couldn't, I didn't know if I could tell or not. And I didn't want to tell them. The truth was I, I didn't have to stay. I had total flexibility. We were in a very strong position. Um, but I, I didn't want that to freak them out like I was going to just mic drop and walk. But honestly, in my heart, I didn't know if I was going to mic drop and, and walk. The day before the deal, I had no idea if I would, because I didn't own it anymore, I would instantly fall out of love with the business, and I'd be ready for what was, what was going to come next. I had no freaking idea how I'd feel. So I go to bed that night, really intoxicated. Um, wake up the next morning, splitting hangover, and a bolt of lightning through my chest. It was clear as day. I had a new purpose. I was not going to drop the mic and walk. I was going to stay, uh, lead the company through the integration. I was going to learn. I was going to make the absolute most of this situation. I had made the decision. I was going to own the decision. Now I was not going to just leave the mess for somebody else. I was going to do right by the buyer and make sure this thing didn't fall apart. I was going to do right by my, my, my team. I was going to do right by myself and my family. Um, so. It filled me with a ton of purpose. And we um, went about taking a very lovey-dovey, culture-driven company and fitting it into a, a larger private equity-backed um, organization 10 times our size. Um, and I settled on, you know, I'd heard all the time, it's like a, a trope, that little 
little companies, oh, what a great company, and it got bought and it's all screwed up now. And it's always on the buyer. The buyer screws it up, the buyer screws it up. My lesson is this, it's not on the buyer. After seeing what happens immediately post-sale, it's not on the buyer. It's, it's on the, 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 the team as much as it is on the buyer. If the company that's being acquired can't do the following three things. Number one, no victims. If you sit and wait for change to happen, like, oh, I'm just going to see how this whole thing plays out with the buyer. I'll see if my role stays the same. I'll see if they take away my ping pong. Then you're screwed. We need creators. We need people that see a problem, see it a challenge, and say, I choose this, I choose that. We really had to educate our team and, 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 and focus on that ourselves. Number two was cynicism. I was so into culture. I didn't realize that cynicism is the kryptonite to culture. The second that my team just said, just made assumptions about what they saw coming down the pipe, we had to kill that. And we killed it by being extremely, uh, uh, you know, if we had a shit popsicle, we called it a shit popsicle. Um, not like a brown popsicle. Chocolate. Oh, never, never mind. It's really bad. Okay, that wasn't on my, my notes. And the third was uh, core value discipline. Yeah, we had been a core values driven business, but now the stakes are super duper high. We had to apply our values against everything, every um, uh, hiring, firing, management decision, um, et cetera. I'm going to skip through some of these um, in the interest of time. So how do we do? Um, and there were so much learnings out of this. We learned so much. I learned so much. Um, but we kicked ass. We kicked ass. We, tr we had tripled our growth rate from the moment that we had let go of our operator. We were back to the 30s. We doubled our headcount with absolutely zero dilution of our, of our amazing culture. We didn't lose one employee to the acquisition. That's unheard of. Our customer net promoter scores stayed up in the 70s. Um, we maintained our margins. And um, I have to say, like, we, the moment, 10 months after, after close, we had even, even more accountable culture than we had before going in. The parent really helped create that urgency. And uh, people ask me all the time, like, how, how do you like working for the man? And my answer was, it's thrilling. The highs are super high. And it's followed by some pretty deep lows. Realization, I'm no longer in charge, followed by really big highs. But it was thrilling. It was a great, it was a great outcome. Uh, lesson for me, everyone had to change. And you know is what the business needed anyway, regardless of, uh, of acquisition? It just freaking forced it. Because if you weren't changed, you moved on. And members of my executive team changed. Just like Mark said, man, the whole makeup Everything changed post-deal because the stakes were high. I was not going to leave the business in that crappy state. I changed massively. One of the forcing functions for me was all the bureaucracy from the, from the integration took up like 30 or 40% of my time sitting on conference calls talking about Outlook email servers. And, <laughs> but that forced me to get out of the weeds. I got out of the way of my team. The only thing I had time left to do was to lead and to manage, not to do any longer. So 
uh, January, February last year, we were acquired again. I got the notice, and uh, it was a London-based private equity firm bought it from our uh, first private equity firm. And uh, very quickly, you know, when you have a new acquisition like that, it's five, seven-year time frames. I'm not leading the parent business. I don't have a long-term role. It was time for me to go. And um, so that was decided pretty fast. And ahead of my original schedule. And so I, I, left, uh, I left the business. I left the business, I think, in, in March of last year. And I was in this space again. I had completely, I was freaked out the night before close. And I did not get that freaked out since. I was full of purpose. It was exciting. It was annoying sometimes. And all of a sudden, I was out. Whew completely out. Uh, for the first time in 17 years, I, I didn't have a company. I didn't have employees. I didn't have um, an industry. Um, I had a lot of time on my hands. My wife was starting to see, like, uh, what are you doing here? She's never seen me. Uh, never seen me at home. I was standing in line at cafes behind retired people I had never seen um, at that time, of, that time of day. And um, and so that, that began actually a really t difficult time. Everyone assumes, you know, like, kind of slap, wake the frick up, Jason. You should be grateful. Look at how much money you made. Company's doing great. Why can't you be more grateful? But I'm not feeling right inside at all. Um, very depressed. The next six months were very difficult. I tried to busy myself. Immediately after leaving the business, we decided, my family and I decided to move to Barcelona. We'd never even been there. <laughs> I'm just like, honey, my theme this year is new. And she's like, all right. Let's see where that goes. So we moved to Barcelona. And, um, and I get to Barcelona, and uh, I, meet an, I meet an expat, meet quite a few expats, quite a few entrepreneurs that had sold their businesses and <laughs> moved to Barcelona. And one day, um, he suggested this white paper, and it was phenomenal. It was the first thing I'd encountered that really, really nailed what I'd gone through. It's called Life After Exit, and it was um, actually commissioned by a wealth management firm um, through Columbia Business School to interview all these entrepreneurs that had sold and what made them happy or didn't ha not happy post-deal. And what they found was all of these entrepreneurs shared the same loss. And it was how they dealt with it or how they were prepared for it really um, predicted their happiness post-exit. The first loss is a loss of community. The moment I left, there's non-competes. There's non-solicits. There's non-work. Like, it's, n it's not even just physical, like, legally. And it's reasonable stuff. So I'm not complaining about it you are definitely removed from your community. Community of customers, community of, um, of employees, industry. Sometimes I just want to sit down and just like shoot the shit, but you know, they're not around. Uh, community of entrepreneurs. I have less in common with those that are still in the game and still building, um, and less and less every day. You lose your purpose. So I had a strong purpose pre-deal. 
I lost it for about 12 hours and then found another one immediately thereafter. And now it's out in the drift again. Um, applying purpose to anything I could, but it wasn't really working. And the third, this was totally a blind spot of mine. I had no idea how much life depended on the inane foundation of meetings, of getting into work at nine, of there's a rhythm to it and a little bit of discipline. It's the kind of thing that when I was in it, I was like dreaming of this Tim Ferriss four-hour work week. Like, I got no responsibilities. I can do whatever. Well, I was there and I finally got it. And I was really miserable. Like I was adrift in a listless sea. Eventually in Barcelona, I manufactured discipline and set up appointments for myself and just started to like recreate some of the, some of the, uh, the structure around that. No one's feeling sorry for me. I know that I had a, um, I took a risk in sharing this, this story because every, you know, we either always think it's all roses or we put ourselves in that person's shoes and, and think, God, I'd, I just want to be with you. Why, don't you. why aren't you more grateful for this? And I want to tell you that I am grateful. I'm filled with gratitude every single day. I live a very blessed life. Um, I've learned so much. Uh, but I have a desire within me to always learn and to um, iterate. One plus one equals three. That means I don't just have an experience and it's an ephemeral thing and it's gone. That means I got to build. I must build on it. So when people ask me, Jason, are you, do, you, um, do you regret selling? Um, no, not at all, without hesitation. I do not regret selling. I made the best decision with the information that I had at the time based on the capabilities that I had at the time. Jason, would you sell it again? No. Based on the information I have today, I didn't need to sell it to make, go through those transformations. And it, that drove me crazy because I started to run across so many other entrepreneurs that were going through the exact same boil the frog scenario. They had gotten tenderized and all of a sudden their optimism had clouded a little bit and they're like, yeah, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just kind of tired of this space and I've got this idea for another startup. Like, dude, you have no idea how difficult it's going to be to build that next startup without a platform, without the programmers, without a ready-made audience of customers to test it on, a distribution network. You're starting from zero and you're looking through back through time in rose-colored glasses. So I, I, I started to really focus on what is it that makes, how could I have my cake and eat it too? How have others had their cake and eat it too? Here's some examples, right? These are all privately held businesses, founder-led, bootstrapped, MailChimp, 37 Signals, 1-800-GOT-JUNK. What were the things that these guys had in common? How did they navigate through those inevitable tenderizations? And they had those tenderizations. It has not just been roses for them. I found, looking at my own business, looking at others that I admired, I felt like I found three things. Three things that if I could talk to Jason in 2011 and say, you're going, every business goes through seasons, dude. 
It's just been too long since you've seen winter, but winter's coming. <laughs> but you'll get through it. Spring's on the other side. Don't be afraid of it when it arrives. Just embrace it. It's all part of the journey. I'm like, okay, all right, okay. thank you, future, future Jason. But there's three, three tactical things I would have done. Number one was a commitment to evolved leadership. These guys have either continued to invest in themselves as leaders and transform themselves. I kidded myself. On my card, it said CEO. I was not a CEO. I was a Mick manager um, or less. I don't know. I was a pancake of a, of a uh, company owner at some point. You know, you go from founder to entrepreneur, entrepreneur to CEO. It's not a straight line, and not everybody makes that transition. And if I can't make that transition, then I've got to hire somebody that can. And unlike my hire, it is possible to find that number two that you make beautiful music with. I've seen it enough, and I've also talked with enough entrepreneurs to know they went through the same thing I did. But they went right back, and they kept looking for the right partner to run their business, to fill in their blanks. So that commitment to evolve leadership. Number two is a long-term strategic roadmap. Alex's presentation, sitting in the audience, if I was oh, a year and a half, two years ago, before I sold, I've been filled with optimism that, whoa, okay, there's another way, another way for me to think long, long-term. What is my 20-year plan? What if it was, what was legally forbidden for us to sell our businesses? We'd be forced to innovate, to not sit on the golden goose until it's dead, but to take that goose and put it over to someone who can maintain it and to take our creative powers and start iterating on the next thing. The best businesses that last 100 years are not doing the same thing they did 100 years ago. And the third is taking chips off the table. Now, I had a profitable business. I was able to take money out, and uh, that was a big turning point for me. Uh, when we did get to that reasonable level of profitability. There's an awareness that you, you don't have to sell the business to get that, that, that nut taken care of. You know, many of us have a mortgage. We have college debt. We have our kids' education to pay for. We have our, um, our retirement to seed. How much money really does that take? One to two million dollars? The utility of that first two million dollars is massive. You want to add on the, the glory money on, on top of that? It's not going to make it any easier to pay the first two. It's done. So what would it take for you to just, once you get to that first real moment of success, to enjoy it, to take a little bit off the table, check your ego at the door, do it. Best way to do it is through good old cash flow and profitability. Um, another way is to bring on a strategic investor that's aligned with your long-term view. 37 Sigmas did that, right? Jeff Bezos bought into their business. No pressure to sell that, uh, sell that company. Um, <clears throat> so as I started to talk to more and more entrepreneurs in Barcelona and in uh, the United States, um, you know, I realized that that feeling of loneliness that I had, um, that feeling of loneliness that I had going through my deal that as a bootstrapper, it is different. It's different for me. It's different for me than if I had raised a bunch of money and I had VCs around the table telling me it's time to, to get out. It's different. 
and there really wasn't a way for me to find others that easily that could relate. And I kept having these conversations with entrepreneurs one-on-one. -on -one. It's like we could really be leaning more on each other. So a few of my bootstrapping uh, friends and I have created an organization called Sovereignty. It's really just meant to be a community of independent businesses that are committed to building for the long term. I'm not against selling. I'm just for operating from a position of strength. I'm for the fact that independent businesses are great for communities. They're great for entrepreneurs. They're great for the employees, for customers. And I, I just desire that, you know, as a society, we can kind of move a little bit away from glorifying the exit as the only manifestation of success. And instead, we can celebrate the fact that we've got real businesses that are creating real jobs that have long-term growth prospects. So, yeah, I, I hope some of this share was uh, made a, a dent, a little dent in your, the way that you think about exits and encourages you or forces you to think about how and what you can do to let your business work for you to achieve your dreams and hopes. And whether an exit's the way to go, that's fine. But maybe it's not. And this is a, there's definitely other paths. So um, I have six minutes for questions, and I would love some questions if anyone has them. Okay, um, let's start over here. I think I remember my question after, after that. Yeah, uh, Jason, one of the points you made was that um, about sovereignty. Uh, my question is, do you think you could have engineered a solution which uh, might have felt a little bit like an exit, but you were still involved with the company? More time, you pull out some money, uh, maybe it's not as, uh, as involved, but you're still the owner of the business? Um, yeah, no, I, I absolutely could have engineered a way to, um, I could have engineered a way to move beyond it. One of the ways that I've seen is creating a holding company. Um, someone I, I, I met and talked to post-exit was Joel Spotsky um, of Fog Creek. And if you guys remember Fog Bugs, you know, it was, uh, uh, that, that business plateaued um, many, many, many years ago. And he just put it in a box and changed the type of people that work on it and just let it sit there. And it's still sitting there, I think. And then they iterated other things like Trello and Stack Exchange and, and on and on and on. Um, and if you did something like that with a holding company above it and you give, one of the, I think something I didn't talk about is just that growth, I was addicted to growth. Yeah, it was like an adrenaline rush for me, but it's also, it was, it was important for my culture because I really believed in people. And I, got, I had to give my team upward ability and a growing company creates those opportunities. A stall growth company, those best people leave. And they leave not because they don't like you, it's just that there's not gonna be that many opportunities. So it was almost like we had to keep iterating and it, that's a model where you can create future and future and future opportunities for your best people. Thank you, Gus. That sounded like quite a roller coaster ride. Do you feel that you've got the stomach to start something new from scratch as you were talking about before? Um, that goes, um, 
Whether I have the stomach to start something new from scratch goes back and forth. And um, I'll tell you what, what feels the best for me right now is that I, I find, I discover a, you know, an entrepreneur, technical founder that's found um, a product market fit and he's, a, and he's or she is frightened of scaling that business. What I love to do, what I learned I love to do was scaling the team and building it to the next, next level and would love to be a partner to that, that individual. I think that might be the best way for me to skip the parts that were really painful for me and go right to the parts that were fun. At the back. Uh, uh, so in your deck, you talked about the fact that post-acquisition, everyone has to change. Can you talk about some of the techniques that you utilize to help facilitate that change that was required? Yep. Um, so The Empowerment Dynamic is a book that is focused on that drama triangle. It was, a lot of drama comes from an acquisition. You've just like made a change on behalf of other people, they had no say in. Of course they feel disenfranchised. Of course they feel like they're a victim. Um, and that was, a, that was, a, that was just a, a learning and an awareness that we had to develop across every single person in the company. So we bought this book and we'd held hold little <coughs> seminars with it as part of like the onboarding for new employees. Remember, we doubled our headcount during that 18-month that, um, period. So that, that was one that was really, um, really important. Another was we really leaned into our transparency. So um, uh, sharing absolutely everything we, we knew with the team twice a week. We'd have the Tuesday 909 all-company huddle. It was fast. It was only nine minutes long. And we had the Friday 404. Again, another company huddle, a little bit longer, um, ending with like, um, announcements, core value shout outs, but all focused on like our objectives. Cool, we've got 45 seconds for our final question. <laughs> Very quickly. Um, so at one of those scary moments where uh, things they want to invest in and growth and, and I can see opportunities and the things, those things are going to cost a lot of money and much more than is coming in and very much a believer in what you've described about sovereignty and hearing lots of people in my ear who don't necessarily know very much saying, well, you should be raising money, you should be going down one of those routes. Do you have, from your experience, have you had suggestions on ways to keep control and counter scary moments like that where income's not so good? Can I have more than 45, three yeah. seconds to answer? One, okay. Um, Does that work? Yes, um, there's two types of uh, bootstrappers I've found um, in the world. There's those that have run their business focused on profitable growth, and there's those that have run their businesses at, at break even under the guise of we reinvest all our profits in growth, in growth. I'm sorry. They may do that, but committing to growing profitably forces you to be more exact on how you're actually spending that money. So a, a, um, I think an important component of committing to an innovative or a long-range strategic plan is to have the ground cover of a decent margin in the business. So you can use that profit to make experiments, to take risks, to, um, 
to, to play. And also to weather the business in case of a little bit of turbulence. Because you may have this great idea about the next thing you need to go do, but if you haven't built margin, sustainable margin into your business, the second things start to get a little bit of sh shaky, you're, you let go of that dream. And you're back to just holding on to what you got. And you're screwed and, and somebody else is going to take that place for you. So I think margin is the, um, I think margin is the keystone to that. Otherwise, there's just a ton of great content and capability now around iterating. And the last thing I'll, I'll say is that I think a lot of companies, one of the un most underrated assets that all of us have as a, as a business owner is you have, once you've gotten to a certain scale, you have a built-in distribution pipe. Use your existing customers to experiment on new adjacencies. Maybe they do one little thing that you can test with and then move into another market. It was very powerful for us in beverage alcohol because there were only 10,000 wineries in the U.S., period. How would you like to get FaceTime with some of the world's leading thinkers? Welcome to Boss Masterclasses. We've rounded up some top experts to lead deep dive discussion sessions with just a handful of attendees. Each masterclass is split into separate parts to give you time to digest and mull over some of the information and allows you to follow up at the next session. You'll leave with tools, skills and ideas to take back to your team. Boss Masterclasses are available now, all led by experts, all designed exclusively for you. Visit businessofsoftware.org slash masterclass. Thank you.